welcome to Center Maryland's The Lobby Pod. We've got a real lawyer today, not just a lobbyist. I know there's a big difference between being a member of the Maryland Bar and a state registered lobbyist in Maryland. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but we're with Jeremy Eldridge of Eldridge, Nachman and Crandall. Jeremy, you guys are located in downtown Baltimore? We eat, yes, equally inconvenient to all, as we said. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're living in Howard County, right? Exactly. Western, Western Howard County, as I've learned, they might, they're like two different counties in one. That's right. That's true. And so Jeremy is, uh, let's see, he's a graduate of the University of Maryland. He's a graduate of University of Baltimore School of Law. Did I get that right? I did. I've been practicing for 46 years, as I'd like to say. <laughs> <laughs> but you're real. You're a real lawyer, not like in in, Mar- in Maryland. We have members of the Maryland bar, uh, and then we also in the lobby pod we have mem- we have people that are registered lobbyists in the state of Maryland, but may not be a member of the bar or a lawyer. So it's special to have what I always my grandfather always made made me say a real lawyer on the podcast with uh, Jeremy, and I'm also really enthusiastic about your not just your practice of law and being a trial lawyer in, uh, in, in Howard County and the Baltimore region in Maryland, but also you're very politically tied into um, Howard County, which is quickly becoming like the power County of Maryland politics uh, with the Senate budget taxation chairman, Guy Gazzoni and uh, wonderful people like Jessica Feldmark and Vanessa Atterbury. You are surrounded by elite elected officials. So I'd like to pick your brain a little bit about that, but I want to know what real lawyers think about real lobbyists. First of all, you just unvarnished, you know, let me have it. First of all, I love the term real lawyer because depending on who says that phrase to you, it's either the biggest compliment in the world or the biggest backhanded compliment in the world. So it really matters what that means. Coming from you, I know it's a compliment because every, what I would say, trial dog or trial lawyer like me wants to hear is to someone refer to them as a real lawyer. The funny thing that I've learned, and I'm glad you asked that question of how real lawyers, so to speak, may view real lobbyists is that, you know, if you would have asked me that question prior to being on the Howard County Democratic State Central Committee or prior to maybe having a little bit more experience in Annapolis, I think I would have had a much different perspective. I think that the last six years, I've learned a lot in the sense that I think our, our jobs are a lot more similar than people think. You know, that now, without making fun of you, a lot of it is going down and being able to work with legislators to help them understand legislation that benefits the constituents or being persuasive, no different than I am in front of a judge or a jury, you just get the benefit of maybe being able to curse a little more loose lip than I do. And hopefully <laughs> you don't have to wear a shirt and die like I do every day. A lot of the, the stereotypes that I used to believe were, were about whether it was jokes about the money or how a lot of these deals occurred in back rooms, I've really come to understand that that, frankly, that's just how business gets done in Annapolis, whether it's meeting for a cigar, or meeting for lunch. It's really these meetings that we used to joke about are really the meetings inside of other meetings or between meetings where you actually have an opportunity. And frankly, I learned that because I'm trying to push a bill right now and I realize how difficult that job is. Well, I'm, you know, the, the trial bar is very powerful in Maryland and uh, I'll try to keep my personal opinions about uh, their policy making to myself for this podcast, but I'd love to hear about your practice day in and day out, because we have an audience of um, 
very plugged in elected officials, constituent minded people. And sometimes, you know, the issues they deal with get beyond the role of a legislator or a staff person for a legislator or an executive and and having an idea of, you know, a people's lawyer that they can reach out to um, might be useful to them. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your your practice. Well, first off, as you mentioned, I'm I'm a former prosecutor. I work in Baltimore City for both Pat Jessamy and Greg Bernstein. I left after approximately seven years in total with being a law clerk and started my own practice back in 2010. And on my end of things, I handle criminal both in state and federal court. So essentially, if you can get a ticket or get in trouble for doing it, I do it. I try to bring a certain level of humanity to it. I know I'm not a judge. I don't wear a robe. I, you know, anyone that knows me, I, I like to refer to myself as fun size. I don't think they make robes in my size, but <laughs> I try not to judge the people who are coming to me. And I try to treat them as I understand a lot of people make mistakes and some of them are, are much worse than little mistakes. And some of them are just, you know, kids who go to Meriwether with a fake ID that all of us joke around about having fake IDs. So that's my part of the practice. I also have a partner that does what I would call uh, immigration detained work, which is if you're removable from the United States of America, not just non-residents or what some people hate the phrase illegal aliens, but non-residents. But this could be people with student visas, work visas um, that are being removed. He does a lot of that sort of work. And I have a partner that does, the, as people call ambulance chasing, we do a lot of personal injury work. I think my style of work, especially both the criminal and immigration that we do with immigration, that honestly lends a lot to the work that you do, Damien, in Annapolis, because we've had some bills that, frankly, I wish we had lobbyists for, uh, especially the Dignity Not Detention bill. That was a very contentious bill in Annapolis. What about uh, practicing law in the D.C. area versus the Baltimore region or the shore or Western Maryland? You guys cover the whole state. You have a favorite courthouse you like to operate out of? Now, look, I speak fluent Spanish, and because of the immigration work we do, I'm a little different. A lot of the lawyers, and I think this is the old-fashioned lawyering, you know, they would go to one county, maybe a couple counties. You know, you have, you have, we even call them Baltimore County lawyers or county that's lawyers. Right. That's, right. that's right. We don't have, no one ever says county lawyers and means Howard County. That's we, true. We know They're, you're a Baltimore County lawyer. The county and, is Baltimore County, hon. Exactly. And, and the Baltimore County lawyers don't love when us city lawyers come up as though we're that far away. And, and don't live there like two of my partners do. But, you know, I travel all over the state and you, you just, you know, not only have to know the constituency there, right? Because that's your potential jury, but then the politics of each and every county really does function or, or there's this weird intersection between the politics and your jury pool and the kinds of cases that you're handling. You know, you have a lot of uh, chicken farms on the Eastern shore. So you get a lot of people that may get in trouble that have collateral consequences for immigration issues for very low level cases. Like, like a disorderly conduct or malicious destruction, a lot of domestic work out there. Whereas closer to DC, you're going to have, you know, diplomats, kids who get in trouble using a fake idea at a bar in Bethesda, and it's going to ruin their opportunity of going to Yale. And then in Baltimore, you get that perfect blend. You get some of the immigration cases as we have a growing Im immigrant community, you get the political cases. So Baltimore is a really interesting blend of both of those. Talk to me about Howard County, because my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, you're a little bit new to it, right? You just moved there in the last five or so years. Uh, but you've you've played such a prominent role, I think, in the the voice of the public and the voice of politics out there, uh, state central committee work, things of that nature. Love to hear your point of view about 
the the opportunities and challenges of being a Howard County Democrat? Isn't that a loaded question? Yeah, you know, I, I grew up in PG County. I refused to say Prince George's because that was that was thrust upon me. But I I spent a lot of my youth in Laurel, which is that sort of tri county Anne Arundel and Howard right. and PG. And so I always wanted to live in Howard. I moved here in 2015 and almost immediately got active. Rich Gibson, the current state's attorney, just to share a quick funny story. I called him to complain about a recent article I read where there were mold in some of the Western Howard County schools, one in particular. And he said, well, you got to stop complaining about it. And I said, how do I do that when you want to do something more? And he says, boy, do I have an opportunity for you. Next thing I know, I'm on the Howard County Democratic State Central Committee, and uh, which did not at all fix the mold problem, but, but gave me a larger microphone. There are a lot of challenges in Howard County because for all of the wonderful things that we talk about, we, we have tied with Talbot County, frankly, the highest voting constituency rate in the state, as you know, Damien, at over 70%. And that presents some challenges, too, because you're dealing with a lot of people that that are very intellectual, are well-versed on the issues, and frankly, in some situations, may have a little too much time on their hands. That's right. And I also think if you if you layer on the fact that outside of Silicon Valley or uh, someplace like that, Howard County has the you know greatest number of IP addresses to residents of any jurisdiction in the country as well. So everybody's online there. So you know, high high voter uh, t- uh, engagement, and then also you know high internet uh, engagement, online engagement. Oh, yeah. The digital divide definitely does not exist in Howard County in the same way that it exists in Baltimore City. And right. so the access to information is much more if you're on opposite sides of the aisle are, are that information is much more accessible to the public. I think the challenges come and I try to remind a lot of people, which is why I'm so loud about it, is that in Howard County, we have problems, but they, these are not a lot of the same problems. The, the, the epidemic of criminal violence in Baltimore City with over 300 murders, which I'm incredibly vocal about. You know, we don't have that problem in Howard County with an incredibly effective Rich Gibson as state's attorney. So what we end up getting caught in is some occasionally is a circular firing squad amongst Democrats, which is very unfortunate where we elected Rich Gibson. This is just a, a newer example. There's a fight at a school. There's a lot of video of a very intense labor intensive investigation. And so there are some Democrats that don't want to give our elected official the time to investigate, essentially doing his job because everyone expects, unfortunately, in society, this new microwave justice. So the challenges that present themselves are when you're dealing with such an educated uh, constituency, some of the people that have these very high expectations, especially for uh, police reform and social justice issues, sometimes that expectations breed sort of a, this expectation of speed. Um, and speed and results as opposed to patience and investigating. And that's just a recent example. Obviously, we dealt with that with COVID as well. You got a bunch of Republican, I'm sorry, Democratic primary challenges out there on the Howard County Council. Do you envision folks like yourself, uh, highly engaged Democrats, um, sitting on the sidelines of that primary, getting super engaged in the primary? How do you handle something like that? I'm definitely engaged. I, I don't necessarily, you know, I, I'm, I've already supported a lot of candidates openly, Marcus Harris for sheriff, who doesn't have an opponent, Rich Gibson, obviously Calvin Ball, Opal Jones, who, who's a great county council member. Where we're seeing really, really heavy and emotional races, for instance, are in District 4, especially between Deb Young and Jansen Evelyn. And Deb Young right now, and I'm sure you know this, Damien, there's some very... Um, there were two emotional hearing last night. 
There's some very contentious legislation before the Howard County Council regarding the public finance dollars that in the law, it says you can have access to the money in August. Now, the county council is trying to vote to change and to say that actually means right now, not the August before the general. And Pretty remarkable stuff that, you know, the, this is like one of the, the first times a campaign finance system has been used out there. And, you know, you have uh, incumbents that don't really understand the rules and are now asking their colleagues a Republican colleague, no less, to change the law for them to accept uh, public monies for their campaign. I mean, it just seems like their entire election is almost an afterthought uh, for Deb Young and, and, and Kittleman, too, on the Republican side. I think that's where our councilman and friend David Youngman, uh, uh, he wants the law to work, he'll tell you. But uh, if they get the law to work, in the way they want it to, it will benefit uh, somebody who wasn't really paying attention to the rules. It'll benefit the Kittleman campaign and, and it'll benefit the young campaign. Am I reading that thing wrong? No, 100%. I think you're reading the tea leaves 100% correctly. The issue here is that first off, the problem should have been solved a while ago. And, and Deb Young waited until the last minute to solve that problem. She's an attorney. So it, in my opinion, she probably should have known better. With regard to Alan Kittleman, we all have this phrase. She's the attorney, she's the attorney that also said that oh, Dr. Opal Jones might need another degree to be a chairman of the zoning board, right? So, I mean, she's been a stickler about how a lawyer should act on the county council. And here she is at the on the brink of her re-election, changing the rules to make it happen for her. It's unbelievable. Well, Damien, I think you used the phrase real lawyer earlier <laughs> in this podcast. And I think this that this is probably the appropriate time to use it the other way. But what you can't forget about is Alan Kittleman opposed that legislation regarding public finance dollars. And then now, only a couple of years later, he's saying, oh, well, no, no, I know I posted before, but now I need the money and now I want to take advantage of it. And that to me, is pretty disingenuous as well. And that is all what that really is, is that there's an alignment, sort of a, a pro, a sort of an anti-growth element that has seeped into factions of both parties and is now demanding that, um, that if you want to be a true blue council member or, or if you want to be a true... Um, sort of integral county executive in Howard County or county council person that you accept no money from people that are in the real estate business or the development business or real estate interest. So just taking that whole segment of the economy and saying, we know you built this place, but you're not relevant anymore. No, I mean, uh, look, we don't want your though. money. You're not allowed to use your money. And if you do take the money from a real estate broker or from uh, a person that develops multifamily housing for moderate income people, your, your money's not allowed according to the Deb Youngs and the Alan Kittleman's of the world. Is that right? Am I, or I got that wrong? No, you're correct. I hate agreeing with you so much, but look, look, first of all, look what that rule did the, the larger rule regarding development money in PG County. Look what it's done for the state politics regarding accepting money from developers. So when you bring that to our county where we don't even have a rule, we're just talking about the accepted norms. You know, everyone talks about Jim Rouse, right? Rouse is, is one of the founders of Howard County, so to speak, and was a developer 
He made Harbor Place in Baltimore. So Pete, you can't talk about this vision that Rouse had about, for instance, I'm in an interracial marriage, about this vision for, for black and white people and married people because they didn't have somewhere where they could live and, and sort of this the anti-segregationist policy that went into his vision for housing, but then also say, hey, look, we don't want to make Howard County better by building. And I mean, one of the large, one of the most outspoken anti-development people, this guy Hurry Hagdu, literally bought a house in the newest development in Maple Lawn for almost a million dollars. So there's never any logic behind what a lot of the anti-development people say outside of just criticizing a candidate they don't like for accepting those funds. Let me tell you my favorite public financing story. A guy named Larry Hogan that nobody thought could win the primary and the Republican primary in 2014 took public money. He got through his primary, ran an amazing campaign, and with about a month left, he got a huge infusion of cash and advertising for the Republican Governors Association because that public financing uh, experience made his campaign competitive to the uh, last month in the campaign. Then the RGA came in, dumped a couple million dollars uh, in the campaign and, and, and turned it for him. You know, then the governor... Um, kept his development company going and has, uh, which has really prospered since he's been governor, despite like three or four bankruptcies in the past, you know? And so he's got this really burgeoning development company all predicated on his uh, public financing effort there. So I'm a, I'm a little suspicious when I see all this stuff going on uh, now at Howard County. No, look, his wife's got a COVID company too. No, I, I think in Howard County, and this is what I said about, I wish we had real problems. You know, I don't mean that to belittle some of the smaller ones, but having spent that time as a prosecutor in the city and being a defense attorney, you're dealing with these large life altering problems. And in Howard County, we tend to get stuck, I would say more in minutia, you know, that everyone got so upset about redistricting, but we had to reallocate schools because we had schools at 120, 130, 140% capacity. Maybe it wasn't done in the in the best. Unless way you're an all white school out in the western side of Howard County, then you're at like 15 points below capacity, right? It, I mean, it I, was really. I, and I didn't like that either. I mean, there there was right. an incident at my at the school that my daughter will attend for high school that there was the N word and there was a swastika. You know, and I'm Jewish. My wife's African American. I'm sitting there. Was was that for me? Was that? Yeah, like, that's not was, that's not yeah, gonna work for you. I, I would like some redistricting. I would like some people pushed out here too. You know, growing up in PG County schools, I went to school in Glenarden and Kenmore, majority minority schools, a lot of diversity. I think I, I got a lot of, of character and just sort of a better person for it. And I couldn't really understand, you know, sometimes in Howard County, a lot of the, the Dems that I align with are, are people that are, are, in my opinion, are more common sense and, are, and, and want that diversity and aren't, and aren't scared of it. And I don't think that's a Republican or Democratic thing. I think that's that's honestly just a, uh, it's just a human being thing, you know, that it's better for, for our children to, to have that diversity in education, both socioeconomic and racial. And, and that makes all of our children a little bit more understanding moving forward. Or we're going to continue to, to combat these same racial issues or redistricting issues every time people forget that. It's yeah, well, you know, what's troubling to me too, is that, is that, you know, like I've known David Youngman forever. I've known Alan Kittleman for a good bit. You know, they fit into the, to the Jim Rouse, Howard County, you're talking about, or like Alan Kittleman's dad, who, uh, you know, basically, uh, 
was I think of the chairman of the school board uh, when they integrated or something to that effect. I mean, he comes from a family of people that have had that uh, open-minded Howard County point of view. I think Democrats, sometimes we get, we get quick to demonize those Republicans in Howard County. We don't agree with, uh, but I think we also miss a little bit of that. You know, we break things into a racial dynamic, which creates instant flare-ups. But there is a bit of that urban versus rural divide that you see, you know, that we've seen since Hamilton and Jefferson. And and I think if I think if Democrats can be a little more patient and understand that these people have more exurban, you know, almost rural values, particularly when you get out there on the the very Western side of the County. It makes it all a little more understandable and it allows you to have a political discussion, conversation, or argument in a, in a more civil sort of way. What do you think? I completely agree. I mean, if you're looking at, for instance, when there was discussion about the RTA, when Calvin ball won in 2018, I was on his transition team. There's a lot of discussion about, you know, the, the RTA, the regional transportation agreement, between the various counties. Well, obviously, if you're a commuter and you're in the Laurel and Columbia areas and you're going to want the RTA through, that's a big issue for you. Out here in Western Howard County, where frankly there's very little public transportation, you don't hear as many complaints. So the issues themselves are bifurcated or, or beyond simply because of the geographic differences. Then you get to the other issues like you just said of you have different crime issues in, in Columbia than you may have in Western Howard County. You have different needs. I know you know, Calvin Ball, for instance, instituted a 911 diversion program where if there were a mental health issue, the calls could be diverted. It was one of the first of its kind in the state of Maryland. And out in Western Howard County, I was I was oddly enough hearing some complaints about why are we spending money on that? I'm sitting there thinking because it's saving resources, not to say that anybody with mental illness is focused in one particular area, but people believe their needs are different. In Western Howard County, you hear about farming, you hear a lot about development. And so it's hard to get everyone to sit down at the same table when their issues are so completely different. That's why that's I right. raised the education issue because it's probably one of the only issues in Howard County that's outside of the bubble that really had everyone paying attention. Boy, did it ever. Uh, I thought, you know, I, I thought Calvin Ball's tone through that was, um, was very appropriate. I felt like I'm sure he had some very personal views on that, which may not reflect those views of the Western side of Howard County, but gosh, his, his tone is, I think one of the most remarkable in Maryland politics. He, you know, he has almost like a guru esque tone and he, and he really understands Howard County voters. So I think it's tough to say, you know, that ball is not being civil or ball is not being the leader that, that Howard County expects. That's what his opponents are, are saying. I, mean, I just don't see it. Education. He's not on the board of education. Yeah. He's not he on the board of education. Basic civics class. I don't know, Damien, if you can do a whole podcast about a civ just basic civics. <laughs> if, if I had a dollar for every time I had to say to somebody when I got a phone call saying, Calvin's doing this with the schools, Calvin's doing this with the schools. It's not Calvin. It's not County Executive Ball. That's right. We have, we, we have what's called the Board of Education. Uh, you have a, an elected representative. I would try contacting them, expressing your appreciation and or displeasure. And That's right. so many people thought that Calvin was making these decisions about redistricting. He can comment on them, but ultimately it was a BOE vote. And that 
that goes back to the Deb Young situation. People are saying now, oh, how can you, how can they not want her to get the money? Well, I'm like, I don't know, know about the law governing how you receive this money, you know, before your homework's due. It's like the kid complaining they didn't understand their assignment the morning that they have to turn it in. Now, and so, that, you know, yeah, yeah. some of it is just educating the constituency with common sense stuff to say, if this was you, would you have done it differently? And should we be empathetic or sympathetic when you didn't do your homework? That's right. I can't say it any better than you. She has played it marvelously in the, in the press. She has been really a marvel to watch how she turned in. Like if you're that kid that didn't uh, bring their homework on the day that it was due, whatever that kid's speech was or whatever she was able to (laughs) misdirection, she was able to offer up was, was uh, uh, remarkably helpful uh, for her case, but it does, it, it still leaves the facts bare, which is this highly competent, incredibly bright woman seeking reelection in, in, uh, in a challenge primary, you know, is literally today making the rules up as she goes along. Uh, God bless you. If you can get away with it, talk to me about where you, uh, came up with this fantastic idea, uh, lawyers on the rocks. Tell people what that is. So lawyers on the rocks is a podcast that is associated with my law firm and lawyers. And at the end of the day, if you've ever been a trial attorney, or I'd say most lawyers, but especially criminal defense attorneys or prosecutors, you come back, you maybe have been in a jury trial days on end of trial, obviously less so during the pandemic. And you come back to the office and you'd sit around with your colleagues and you talk about what happened, what crazy stuff happened that day. You know, just, you might want to talk about what's going to happen tomorrow. And you, you pour yourself a whiskey and everyone sit around and just talk, whether it's getting advice or joking around. And one of my friends turned to me, one of the other lawyers said, I don't understand. Like, why don't you guys just do a podcast? Why don't you guys just record this stuff? Because it's pretty fucking funny. That's and right. So we started recording it. We're about 150 episodes in. And we talk about, you know, we do, I can't believe it's not Baltimore, which is mostly pulling news stories from Florida because that's where all the ridiculous things happen. People getting arrested, having sex with alligators or or (laughs) having a Japanese sex robot drive a car in an autonomous (laughs) vehicle. I can make, I can literally, I don't have to make these up. They just happen. And so a lot of them are Republican politicians getting in trouble, which are always fun. So we do the funny news stories. We do some serious stuff. We, we talked a lot about Marilyn Mosby, for instance. And then we talk about when Donald Trump is in office, a lot about the immigration policy as it hits home pretty hard, as it has, especially with the dignity not detention bill in Maryland. So we try to have fun. We have a drink. We obviously hope to have you on pretty soon so we can have some of the same discussion. I can throw some up. I know you're going to check for my, uh, my court of appeals bar membership, right? You'd be like, show that one at the door. Nobody ever believes I'm a lawyer. I give a pretty good reason. <laughs> you talk like it. one. It's like, you got to sound like one, right? You don't even need to fake it like you make it. You just got to say it like you believe it. You got to Deb Young it. That's what we call it. <laughs> Tell me what's your favorite uh, lawyers that you've either had on the podcast or real sort of mentors. This is a chance to really stroke the people that made you talk to me about, a couple people, a couple members of the bar that you're working with now or came up with that, that are just special to you? You know, we recently did a podcast with Warren Brown. Warren is a very longtime Baltimore City defense attorney, very involved in politics in Baltimore City, sort of infamously known for outside of being a lawyer, for, for being a Greg Bernstein supporter and then switching to Marilyn Mosby. We're all kind of hoping he switches to Ivan Bates. But Warren... <laughs> Warren is the character of characters. He's represented some of the most high profile P 
people charged in Baltimore City. And when he came on the podcast, he was so open. He just started talking about emotionally what it's like to represent people, how long he's been doing it. He was so honest about what he thought about Marilyn Mosby, what he thought about representing people that were accused and frankly did some pretty horrible things at times. And he said it in a way that I just didn't expect Warren to do it. And I got a lot of really good feedback. So if somebody was looking for an episode to dive into, that's one that I can just say right off the bat is an amazing one. We did, uh, I'll share two other very quick ones with you. One was with Bruce White, who runs a treatment facility called One Promise. And at one point, Bruce White was labeled in the Baltimore Sun as a criminal defendant, as an apex predator in the Baltimore County Circuit Court. And Bruce did a lot of jail time. And when he got out, he started this amazing treatment facility. Uh, he's been sober for 20 years, but he shared some amazing stories about, about the prison environment, about drug use, about Baltimore City. And the last one I would say is, is really one that, that wasn't a lawyer. Sometimes we just have guests on because we want a different perspective. And we had a doctor on from Hopkins, Fred Barrett, who was talking about the LSD study. Or wow. sorry, the mushroom, what, the psilocybin what study a guest. That doing. And You're like Joe Rogan. He's got like, that. that's that's a Joe Rogan caliber guest right there. Which is weird because we also tried Invermectin on the show. And, and occasionally we get out of whiskey. We like to try other COVID medicines just to try them out. So we did the horse, the horse Invermectin on that episode. But we had Fred Barrett on and just sort of the interplay of how some of maybe people that I might represent end up in, at, at Hopkins dealing with, I've represented Navy SEALs, a lot of veterans, how people that have these serious medical issues that may result in, in being a criminal defendant at some point, unfortunately, and then also how psilocybin or mushrooms may be able to assist them in, in getting past a lot of their trauma. So those are three good ones if anyone's looking. We did not do mushrooms on the show, although we, we I don't want to say we tried, but we, uh, that did not occur on the show. Well, look, I mean, I think, uh, I think if uh, psilocybin were a more widespread use, you might, uh, you might be out of, uh, you might be out of work as a criminal defense attorney. It seems like there's a lot of people that are, like you said, that are in, involved in some criminal elements, uh, as a result of the trauma they've experienced in their lives. And, and, and psilocybin has turned that around. I got a buddy who was just a chronic smoker. And had just had enough of it and uh, uh, legally got coached through it at, outside of Maryland. And, uh, you know, he did one a psilocy guided a psilocybin, psilocybin trip and he stops, never smoked a cigarette again. So a lot, lot of stuff to look forward to there. Do you I think, go ahead. I was going to say, I asked him to do it for me with Popeye's chicken tenders and that, that <laughs> unfortunately miserably failed. So I've heard it works well with smoking cessation uh, and I've heard it real works has really remarkable effects with PTSD. So uh, let's talk about, I'll let you, this will be our last little uh, foray here. And then I'll let you go. You have a lot of, you and your partners have a lot of experience. Again, Eldridge, Nachman and Crandall, they go by EN lawyers, right? Yes, sir. Um, uh, talk to me about the state's attorney's race. Um, you're a Democrat. You have a lot of experience in those offices. You know, it works. What does it work? You kind of seen it all. You saw the you know, O'Malley policing experience. You saw the Greg Bernstein reforms. You've seen guys like Michael Schatzow go work at Venable, go work for Marilyn Mosby. You've seen Ivan Baker 
Beats make a run at it and, and, and not quite get there. Thiru is in the game as, as, as he's found himself to be uh, often. So talk to me about what's happening in the Baltimore city state's attorney's office today. I'll be candid with you. We just, we just poke some fun at the governor. Like when I, when I see the charges or the concerns that are brought up against Marilyn Mosby in the context of some of the other stuff that's going on in the state, it, um, it doesn't, it, it doesn't seem to measure up. I'm hoping you can shed some light on why all this scrutiny is happening and why that's important to the city, uh, to residents of Baltimore city. Yeah, of course. Let me, let me work backwards there, which is the first thing you have to look at is the one big complaint. Like you just said about, I I'll use the word petty. Some people are saying, well, these charges look petty. They look sort of, you know, low level, you know, why are they even doing this? And, and there are two, there are two points to be made. The first of which is, I assure you that Ed Norris, who did six months for mortgage fraud, who's a former Baltimore City Police Commissioner, and Daryl D'Souza, who was also a former Baltimore City Police Commissioner, who did a year and a day for tax, not paying his tax, tax avoidance, they're not seeing any home feeling like this is petty. So the U.S. Right. Attorney's Office has a historical pattern of going on tax charges. So this prosecution is not is not a giant surprise, although it's low level. But when you're the chief prosecutor, when it's your decision to who to investigate, what to investigate, whether to approve charges at the highest level, it doesn't matter how petty your misconduct is, because if you were a criminal defendant, if I'm representing one of your children, your mother, brother, sister, cousin, and you know that Marilyn Mosby isn't honest in her personal finances. You know that she's potentially committing tax fraud, mortgage fraud. Do you really trust in her ability to make a, an ethical decision in your family member's case at the highest levels? And the answer is no, because that job you have to wear, and I hate quoting the scandal television show, you have to wear the white hat, right? right. You, you can't trust in that official. The second thing that you have to look to is- But isn't that an issue for voters more than it is for, for judges and juries or no? No, I think you're right. And, and you you lead me to the second point, which is the sad data that was overshadowed this past week by virtue of the charges filed against Mosby was the fact that the, her felony dismissal rate was released to the public. And because of the Luther Trent story, where he said that no crime, a criminal defense saying no crimes being prosecuted, and because the charges, what was lost to the public and to voters, and really is way more important to me than the charges, is the fact that it appears as though almost one half of all circuit court felony cases in, in Baltimore City are being dismissed. And the reason that's such a powerful number for voters to pay attention to is that means that somebody was arrested, they had a bail review, the case was presented to grand jury, that there was evidence conveyed to a defense attorney. So that's four to five lawyers that all blessed the case and said it was fine. And then three to four months later, the case is no longer magically delicious and it's dismissed. So for the victims that were dragged through the process, grand jury members that wasted their time, prosecutors that wasted their time, defendants that maybe sat in jail and lost everything, when you take 50% of those cases, what does that say about the efficacy of Marilyn Mosby as a leader and as a prosecutor? That's the number voters have to pay attention to, and I hope it's not overshadowed by her criminal charge process itself. Yeah, I you know she's a, she is a very new uh, Marilyn Mosby is a very new sort of leader. She is uh, one of these uh, very modern prosecutors, uh, like we see up in Philadelphia on that TV show, The DA. 
Um, her husband's a city council president. You know, it just seems like people are taking so many angles at them. You know, the crime issue is a huge problem. I understand why people want to direct their concern at, at her and at the mayor and at the police commissioner. That seems like, you know, very fair play. It just seems like there was so much scrutiny around those broader issues that you ultimately got into kind of the, the Al Capone situation where they got you on your signature or, or the, or the, as you said, the, um, the, the two prior police commissioners in the city of Baltimore who had similar charges. I just, I'm not sure in that electorate in the Baltimore city electorate that, you know, that, that voters are going to view, you know, it, it may be too much of a hodgepodge coming all at that one person. They may feel like they, they instinctively need to defend her. So I've, I've got, uh, I'm interested in that race just because I've always stayed way out of the state's attorney's races because they're so complicated and they require real lawyers. Uh, but this one, I just, it just seems like uh, the timing of it. It's, it's all a little, um, it just may all be a little too much for the, for the Baltimore city voter to, 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 to absorb all these directional attacks. I think they might just see so much of the attack. They, they think there might be something to the other side of it. How's you know, that for an inarticulate expression of my it, view? You know, in 2018, when I was talking to whether it was uh, people in the community, friends in Baltimore city, clients and their families, I think after the Freddie, they failed Freddie Gray prosecutions, I think people were more understanding and willing to give that second chance. I'm hearing a lot less of it this time around. Uh, some of those very same people that I'm talking to now have a lot less patience for Marilyn Mosby, whether it's, and everyone has different reasons, whether it's finding out that she missed 188 days of work in two years, or, you know, the, the little lies that they're just tired of saying that your, your businesses are operational and you need COVID funds, you're suffering hardship while buying vacation homes with defunct business money. And so, you know, I think you're right in the sense that it's complicated, but what I'm, what I'm hearing from a lot of potential voters is that everyone's latching on to these little issues. But the big issue that people are finally tying to her is the H numbers, the homicide number. And that when you hear about this felony dismissal rate as, as being a victim or for a low level offense, like a car breaking, or you hear Meryl Mosby say, and this, this is something strange but true, Damien, if you live in Canton and Federal Hill, and maybe murders aren't your problem, but car break-ins are, and the state's attorney gets on television and says, I'm not going to prosecute car break-ins, that's a big deal if you're a city resident and already feel like you have a high tax rate. That's so right. it's little issues like that that I'm hearing. So you're right that it's a hodgepodge, but a lot of people are latching on to those little things. I'm unabashedly an Ivan Bates supporter. I think we need somebody with more experience that can attract a higher level prosecutor back to the office. They've lost 100 experienced prosecutors, a lot of which were also uh, African-Americans. It's not just all white guys. You know, I think she paints it differently than it, than it actually was, because a lot of them are my friends. But the experience has to come back to that office if you want to achieve a higher level of prosecution like we saw under Greg Bernstein. Now, what about what about the governor's role in all this policing and crime fighting in, in, in Baltimore? When, when I was a staff person for the city senators, you know, I remember one of the great ways to pull everybody together was this criminal justice coordinating council. Um, 
and it would not work sometimes and it would work sometimes, but it always had representatives of the mayor's office, state's attorney's office, the governor's office, you know, during the O'Malley administration, his first years, he learned so hard uh, with the Ehrlich that, you know, you really got to have a governor actively engaged on things like parole and probation um, and other such matters, or, you know, you can, you can point your finger at three city officials all day if you don't have your parole and probation program straightened out and they're letting people back on the street all the time, which is supposed to be the case with governor Larry Hogan, you know, you're not going to solve the problem. And then we just end up pointing the fingers at the same people. Guess what? They all happen to be uh, African-American. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, it's just, it's, it's not a very uh, nuanced conversation. That's gotta be somewhat frustrating to you. Look, I sat on the criminal justice coordinating council subcommittee on bail reform. So I'm, very well acquainted with what you're talking about. And it was nice to have everyone at that table. I was incredibly disturbed when I heard Mayor Brandon Scott say recently that his goal was to get everyone back at that same table, right, but he right. needed to bring Marilyn Mosby in, which already says to me that it's a fractured relationship, whether he wants to admit it or not. I think the bigger point, though, that you just highlighted in the Hogan issue, and, and I have to call Governor Hogan to the mat on this, is that you know, Governor Hogan gave Marilyn Mosby almost $3 million to protect victims and witnesses in this city. And there was no, there were no attachments. There was no auditing or performance measuring of that money. And what we ended up seeing happening was Marilyn Mosby putting up billboards on 83 North and South saying, I'm here to protect victims. And having been a prosecutor, defense attorney, if I were a victim or a witness testifying against a violent drug trafficking organization, nothing would make me feel safer in Baltimore City than seeing a billboard where Marilyn Mosby says she's going to protect me. It's like the what warmest billboard blanket. But wow. the governor failed. He succeeded in giving money to something important and failed in not performance measuring with that money and allowed Marilyn to engage in self-promotion. And we're seeing the same thing with the governor giving money to the attorney general's office to create a larger prosecutorial division but that's only to do Marilyn Mosby's job. If you're in the private business world and you have employees that aren't working, you're not going to hire more employees to do what the employees who aren't working are doing. And so, but in this, this situation, we've allowed Marilyn Mosby to get away with murder by not prosecuting these cases and now creating an even, even more work for, frankly, in my opinion, and the attorney general is vastly underpaid for, for the amount of work. And it's hard to attract really good lawyers that want to go do that job. And so if you expect to bring in someone high caliber that now has the added responsibility of prosecuting violent crime across the state, we need to, we, that's, that's a big change. That's something that's not discussed. You know, Governor O'Malley did it to attract Greg Bernstein, essentially. Maybe we need to do the same thing with the Attorney General's office with, now that Brian Frush is going to leave to see who can we bring in to get, to get a wider pool of candidates. I think that's a very smart analysis. I just, as an outsider, now with Baltimore, I think it's just one of those things. It's like, you can't your instincts to point the finger and that'll get you somewhere. But the reality is everybody has got to roll up their sleeves and get to work. And that means, you know, regular people on the side of the street that see something not going right. You know, they got to step up just like you're asking Marilyn Mosby and the mayor to step up. It's gotta be something for everybody. I can't thank you enough for your analysis you have any last words for this uh, august uh, audience that we have, uh, mostly emanating around Maryland's county seats and Annapolis? Any any last thoughts? I really appreciate your. I've I have one request to make, and that is, you know, I, I mentioned a bill like the dignity not detention bill, and it, I don't want to hash into how I thought about it personally, but I think 
one of the biggest problems we have in Annapolis that is so easily remedied is inviting a lawyer, doesn't have to be me, but some lawyer that's in the trenches when you're doing criminal justice litigation or criminal justice legislation or immigration legislation, because Byron Warnkin, who's one of the most famous Baltimore City or Maryland lawyers in history, Byron used to go down to Annapolis and he was looked at and he was so revered and listened to be talking about the intended and unintended consequences of bills. And we haven't replaced him. And what I'm seeing is some legislation come out that is going to have some side effects for people or some side effects for the law that the public doesn't want or need. And so the only thing I would ask is if you're a legislator listening, if you're talking about introducing criminal legislation or immigration, outside of going to maybe one of the advocacy groups that supports it, talk to one of the lawyers that's in the courtroom, dealing with the clients, talking to the families, because that's who it's going to affect. And unless you know that consequence, you don't know anything at all. It's the old Walter Baker question, right? He would always somebody come up and testify for a new bill in the criminal code. He said, I, 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 I see what the bill says. Now, can you tell me what it does? <laughs> and that's all I'm asking. That's all that's I'm asking. Right. I mean, I just just bring the chef out of the kitchen and ask about the ingredients before you taste the amuse-bouche. I mean, I, I don't think I'm asking for anything crazy. I'm just like, hey, would you talk to somebody that knows what they're doing before you do something else? Talk to a real lawyer, and I don't mean that offensively. I mean that respectfully. Jeremy Eldridge, he's one of the finest trial lawyers, criminal defense lawyers you'll find out there. Uh, he is based in Baltimore and Howard County. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us on The Lobby Pod. Well, dude, you got a Byron Morgan mentioned in